everybody. Morning. Welcome to Venice Bible Church, Cupertino. My name is Becca Singley. I'm our youth pastor here, and it's good to see you all. Good to be worshiping together this morning, both here in person and on our live stream as well. So we want to focus. welcome you who are watching with us as well. Hear these words. Allow them to um, shape your heart and your mind this morning. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. As members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you that we get to come into this place gather together and worship you. Lord, we thank you that that not only happens here in this auditorium or in our youth room or our kids' classrooms, God, but it happens in all areas and places of life that we can magnify you. Whether it's on youth trips uh, and whitewater rafting or in our homes or our places of work or our friends in our neighborhood, God, I pray that we each would be people who magnify you to the world around us. God, I pray this morning that you would knit our hearts together, that we would become one, that we would recognize that that only happens because of the work that you have done through the sending of your son. God, it's because of his sacrifice on the cross, Lord, um, that we get to be your people, that we get to call you our God and worship you. So Lord, this morning, um, do that for us. Open our hearts and minds to hear your word. Lord, bind us together with your love, a love that is deep and abiding and everlasting. God, I pray that then we would go out into this world around us and we would reflect that love. God, I pray that it would be true of us, that the people in our lives who see us and know us would see you because of your love reflected in us. God, I pray we would be known by your love. So Lord, this morning, as we hear your word in our classes and in the youth room, as um, we listen to teachers and, and to Jerry here in the auditorium as well, God, um, shape us into that. Shape us into your people who love you and love those around us. And through such, may your glory be present here on this earth. So we love you, Lord. We praise you in your name. Amen. So here are these words from 1 Corinthians 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. For if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, 
where would be the sense of smell? But that, as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them he chose. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Well, we thank God that that is true for each of us. Thank you, Becca. Good morning, folks. My name is Jerry. Wow, a round of good mornings. Um, my name is Jerry. Uh, my wife and I have been part of the PBCC family for over 30 years. And if you don't know us, it's probably because we go to the first service. So it's good to be here with you. Um, we have actually, my, my wife and I actually began our association with Peninsula Bible Church back in Palo Alto when I was uh, still a grad student at Stanford University. I was a very new believer back then. I was blessed to be sitting under the teaching of uh, Steve Zeisler, whom you heard here last week. And I don't know if you remember Ron Ritchie, who always reminded me of Moses on Mount Sinai. And of course, Ray Stedman. And their Bible-centered, deep and rich expository teaching really instilled in me a love of scripture. One of the books I read back then uh, at Stanford was a, a book by Ray Stedman called Body Life. You've heard of that? It's his exposition on, on Ephesians chapter four and had a great impact on me. <clears throat> uh, once I graduated and we moved down here to PBCC and we started serving as various roles here, um, the principles that I learned from Body Life really became more and more applicable, especially uh, as I served as an elder here at PVCC for the last 20 years, we find ourselves going back to Ephesians 4 time and again to discern how it is that God wants this local church to function, to operate. Earlier this year, as I retired from the Board of Elders, uh, the pastors invited me to come and share with the congregation some of the lessons that I learned as an elder for 20 years. So I thought, what better verses to share than, than Ephesians 4. So in this short two-sermon series, what I'm going to do is I'm going to review some principles that we can learn from Ephesians chapter 4, because they, they form the basis of how PBCC operates. They talk about the role of elders and leaders. They talk about the role of and the responsibility of the congregation. So. I'm gonna cover several of PBCC's core family values. Values such as participating in God's work, like utilizing your spiritual gift to do the ministry of the saints, all centered around a devotion to the word of God. Now these concepts may seem familiar to many of us. They may seem new to some of us, but in either case, I think it'd be good to visit or to revisit these foundational verses and the principles that we can learn from them. So before we begin um, a new series, I'd like to always give a background, a context of how Paul and the city of Ephesus are connected and the reason for his letter to the believers there. Now, Ephesus was a city in the Roman province of Asia. It was located in what is now Western Turkey, and it was directly across the sea from the GNC from uh, Greece, from Athens. Now back then in the first century, 
Ephesus was a bustling metropolis. It was known for its beautiful architecture, some of which you can still see. It was known for being a center of worship of its goddess, uh, the goddess Artemis. During his second missionary journey, around 50 AD, um, Paul went and stayed for two whole years in Ephesus. And during those two years, he preached the gospel day in, day out to anyone who would come. And God did marvelous things through Paul's evangelism. So by the end of two years, pretty much everybody in the province have heard the gospel. And many, many have embraced the way of Jesus. Now, 10 years after that, uh, Paul was now in prison in house arrest in Rome, and he penned a few letters back to the churches that he started. He wrote a letter to the Colossians that Eugene just preached on last month. Uh, he wrote a letter to the Philippians that I had a chance to preach on a couple years ago. And the third of his prison epistles was a letter to the Ephesians. Now, his letter to the Ephesians wasn't particularly to correct an error in their doctrine or theology. Rather, it was to expand the landscape. It was to open their eyes to see the magnificent, redemptive work of God, to see the incredible glory of Jesus and his headship that he wanted the Ephesians to live under. So magnificent was this plan of God, so glorious was Jesus in view, that the letter of Ephesians is sometimes called the Grand Canyon of the New Testament, because it was such a magnificent view. So let me give you a short outline of this letter. The purpose of the letter, as I said, is to magnify the glory of Christ. Magnify the glory of Christ, and to explain his headship. Now, the letter is neatly divided into two halves. The first half, Paul gives a theology, the wonderful good news of salvation by grace through faith alone. He talks about the peace that we have in Christ as we are united with him. And then he talks about the, the wonderful mystery of the gospel, which he had the privilege to preach. Now, in the second half of the book, Paul moves from theology to application from the good news to good advice. And the good advice he had were to his church, to his, to his people. Then he had advice for individuals, asking them to live in holy living under the context of mutual, self, mutual submission. And then chapter six, is that, there's that famous passage about putting on the armor of God in your daily living. Now, in our sermon series, we're going to focus on the advice in chapter 4 to his church. And today, we're going to focus on the first six verses of that. So we're going to read, um, I'm going to read for you Ephesians six, uh, 4, verses 1 through 6. Verse 1. Therefore, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Then four through six, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, 
one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, as I read through these verses, what really jumped out at you, especially verses four through six? It was repetition, repetition of the word one. And, and how many ones did he have in there? I hear the gears grinding and counting. There were seven ones, seven, the number of perfection and completeness. And among these seven ones, you'll see that in the beginning, in the middle, and the end are one spirit, one Lord, one God. So the triune God frames this whole piece with Jesus, the Lord, being right in the middle. This is a well, beautifully constructed verse. And I think that we will take this sevenfold unity, which is diagrammed here, as the arrow of this passage. This is where God wants his local church to point to, a sevenfold unity. It's called unity in the spirit, as we read in verse three. Now, an arrow actually consists of three parts. There is an arrowhead, then there is the middle, the shaft, and then there's the feathers at the end, or called fletching. Yeah, I had to look that up on the internet, fletching. I found it there, so it must be, must be right. <laughs> now, this, this three-part picture is actually a really good mental image because it corresponds to the three-part sermon that I have. And here's how it corresponds. The arrowhead is the sevenfold unity that we're going to focus on just a bit. The shaft is the body of Christ, the community of God, as it follows the arrowhead. And then the fletching, the feathers, that's us, the individuals, the individual members of the body that make up the body. Our words and our deeds and our actions propel the, the shaft towards the arrow. So this is the three-part picture I want you to have in mind as we, we start this sermon. Now, um, let me make some preliminary comments um, before we dive in into the seven ones. Paul uses the term unity, henotes in Greek. What is unity? What does he mean by that? He says it here. He also says it in verse 13, which we're gonna cover next week. Well, let me start by saying this is not unity. Uh, unity is not uniformity. It doesn't mean that we all are uniform, that we all look the same and say the same things and think the same things. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. Also, unity doesn't mean a union. Union is a, it's an institution. It's an organizational term. It sort of has a connotation of you being bigger and stronger, that, that you have a hierarchy and you have rules and regulations. That's not what unity in the church is about. Let me propose to you, unity is relational. It's a relationship. By that I mean, if we are one, let's say we are one with Christ, it means we have a relationship with him. And through that relationship, I'm, have unity with Christ, and you have unity with Christ, and so on and so forth. Through that relationship, we have a relational unity amongst us. This oneness, this relational oneness, it was very well described by Christ. 
as he prayed for his own disciples. He prayed in the upper room in John chapter 17, and this is a, a verse which Sean will return to as he comes back in the fall. He'll be preaching from John. He prays for his disciples and his followers in 17 in this way. He says that they, his followers, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, I in you, that they also may be in us, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one. You hear that same refrain again, one? That's unity, that's relational unity. So unity is not uniformity, it's not an organizational union, but it's a relational oneness, one that originates from God and is instilled in us by the Holy Spirit. Now let's dive in into the seven ones. The first one is one body. Well, I think it's pretty clear that one body is the church. The church isn't just a group of individuals who happen to meet on a Sunday, who happen to think similar ideas. No, Paul uses a different term. He, he uses a very organic term, soma, soma. And that's an orga organism, it's, it's really a body. You know, it's, just as the scripture reading we said, we are many parts, we have eye and ear and nose and lungs and pancreas. We all look different, we perform different functions, but we are one body. We, we have a shared mutual life and we depend on each other. And this life that we share as a body, why that's called body life. That's where, that's where Ray Stemmen got his, his, the name for his classic book, Body Life. Next one, one spirit. One spirit is, of course, the spirit of Christ that Jesus sent to indwell in us. This is the one great, eternal, invisible person of the Trinity that gives us spiritual life. This is the one spirit that is same, it's in you, it's in you, it's, it's in me, it's in every believer, it's in every believing church, that one same spirit. And it is the true power of God as expressed through us, his people. As we participate in God's work, we are energized by that spirit, we are guided by it. And if we live in a life under his guidance and obe in obedience to the spirit, then we live a life in the spirit. If that sounds familiar, it's because life in the spirit through grace is one of PVCC's core values. The next one, we are called to one hope that belongs to your call. What is this hope? It might be different for every person. That's, you know, like I hope that the Warriors win again next year, or I hope my car doesn't break down. No, it's a lot deeper than that. This is a hope that all believers can have. This is a hope, and Paul describes it in Colossians 1, uh, which Eugene preached on last month. Colossians 1, verse 27, and he's referring to the, the, the mystery of the gospel that he's preaching. He says, the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The Christ in you, my friends, the 
glory of Christ is the, that's our hope, our eternal hope. How does that work? Well, the Holy Spirit that indwells in us changes us from the inside out. He conforms us into the likeness of Jesus. Our characters become more and more like the character of Christ. And it is our hope that someday that transformation will be complete, that we can fully reflect Christ's glory in, our, in us, that we can magnify him to the world fully and perfectly. I don't think that's gonna happen while we're alive, honestly. I think it's a lifelong transition and transformation, but it'll happen when Christ returns. And in fact, the Apostle John, um, he writes about this, this when Christ returned and how we will be like him. He wrote in 1 John 3, he wrote, we know that Christ, when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. And listen to this. Everyone who hopes in this shall be purified just as he is pure. That is the hope of glory that we have, that all believers can have, and that unites us. Then the fourth one, right in the middle, one Lord. Obviously, this is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, the Greek word for Lord is kurios. This word means master, owner. It means someone to whom a person belongs. So when we claim Christ is Lord, what are we proclaiming? We're proclaiming that he is our master, that we are his bondservants, that he has, he has authority over us and we owe our allegiance to him. You see, we proclaim that, that we are his and he is our master everywhere we go. We should, by our actions, by a word, we proclaim Christ is Lord until that one day when everybody can proclaim it. When Paul says in the Philippians 2, he says, when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Now the next one down is one faith. We know that there are many denominations of Christianity. We know that there are many believing churches here throughout the world, throughout all of history, but that doesn't mean we have many faiths. There is one faith that binds all of us together. No matter how different or diverging the theologies may be. And this is the one saving faith that redeemed all of us and each of us. This is a saving faith that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he was vindicated upon his resurrection, and he was glorified upon his ascension. While there may be many different doctrines or different traditions or theology that might even diverge, there is this one saving faith that unites all of us. And this is faith in Jesus Christ, Kurios, the Lord, and Jesus Christ, our Savior, the saving faith. Next one. Well, speaking of different traditions or theological interpretations, Paul says there is one baptism. What does he mean by that? Does he mean baptism completely by immersion? 
or you're in a beach and you get baptized as a wave flashes you, or, or there's some sprinkling of holy water on your forehead, is it baptism of an adult or baptism in an infant? They're all different. Baptism is all different. What's baptism from one church may sound all wet to a different church. Thank you, thank you. I'm here all week. You see, that's not what Paul's talking about. The baptism he's talking about is something very different. It is, a, it is a symbol. Let me read to you what he says from Romans chapter six about baptism. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were there buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 3, and 4. See, Paul is saying baptism, it's a symbol of dying with Christ and then with him be raised by the power of God to have newness of life. He also continued to say in 1 Corinthians 12, and we read this in our call to worship. He said, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. One spirit, one baptism, one body. This is baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, one father. And one God and father, the final element of unity. He is the divine source of unity, of the community life. Our Heavenly Father, loves us so deeply. He has adopted each one of us in love before the creation of the world so that we can be his children. He wants us to embrace him and know him and call him Abba, Father, the one Father. His love is there for us is so, so deep, as deep as a lordship of Christ in our lives, as deep as a fellowship of the Holy Spirit, as deep as the eternal life that comes only from God. So here then are the sevenfold ones. This sevenfold one summarizes basically the true nature of Christian unity. If you're a believer, then I think you will identify with these seven ones. You may not have articulated them that way, but as I went through them, you could probably identify. Yes, that is true. Oh, I agree with that. It's because the Holy Spirit has brought you into agreement on these seven foundational elements of our faith. And as we come together, we have this common understanding and therefore this common bond and a common relationship. The Holy Spirit brings us corporally into agreement, into a unity, a relational unity. And the unity created by the Spirit in this way is the arrowhead of our passage. And now that brings us to the second part of my message and the second part of this picture, the shaft. This long straight part of an arrow, the shaft, it is what propels, it is what gives the arrow its direction and its strength and forward momentum. And let's use that as an image for our body. A, a unity in this congregation, in this community, is what gives the arrow its for, forward momentum, its trajectory as it flies, following the arrowhead given by God. What is the role of our local church as the shaft in following the arrowhead? Now, 
We'll back up and we'll go to verse three of Ephesians four. And there Paul says, we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Paul doesn't say we have to create or we have to manufacture unity. He says we have to maintain unity. So if we didn't create it, who created it? Well, as I said earlier, it was the Holy Spirit that created this relational unity. And once the Spirit has established that unity, then we are to maintain it. Uh, more than that, we are to eagerly maintain it. Meaning we have to strive, we have to put our effort, every effort, every effort in order to preserve the unity which the Spirit has already created. Now, I'm gonna give you a few implications of our role as a body to maintain that unity. First, we don't create or enforce theological or doctrinal uniformity. By that I mean we can agree to disagree on theological or doctrinal issues which are not essential. As long as we agree on the, the, the fundamental you know, sevenfold elements that we talked about earlier and we agree on the saving faith, other things may be non-essential. The concept of agreeing to disagreeing was explained by Paul. Um, and he did this in Romans chapter 14. We're back to Romans. Yeah, I know. I quote from Romans a lot because the men just spent two years studying Romans. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll, I'll quote from, a few, uh, from uh, Revelation very soon for the ladies. <laughs> so here's what he wrote in Romans 14. He said, let us not quarrel over opinions. Let's not quarrel over opinions. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. You hear that? We can agree to disagree as long as we hold together. So here as a church, let's not get caught up on these debatable matters. Like, what political party represents my beliefs? Or what social issues do we have to dive into, whether it's Black Lives Matter or anti-Asian hate or Christian nationalism? Let's not get caught up on things that are debatable. Things like, what types of songs do we sing? Or what type of liturgy? Or do we even do liturgy? Let's not split the church on who's, who gets to be leadership in church. Are we egalitarian or complementarian? Let's not get hung up and divided on things like masks, vaccinations, Roe versus Wade. My friends, we can agree to disagree, but let us, and I'll reread Romans, let us pursue for what makes for peace and for mutual upbringing. My second exhortation is diversity. I mean, I look around us. We are a very diverse group. And we come from different age groups. There were some young ones. Some of us are not so young. Some of us are young at heart. We come from different social and economic groups. We come from different cultures and languages and ethnicities and races. And I think that's 
beautiful. I love that about this church. We're not uniform. And I think that's what, that's what heaven's gonna be like. We're all gonna look different, but we all have one God. In fact, the vision of heaven, this is what the apostle John records in Revelation, ladies. In Revelation chapter seven, he records this vision of heaven. He wrote, he saw a great multitude. No one could number from every nation, all tribes and people and language and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb. That's what heaven's gonna be like. And this side of heaven, we get to have a taste of it. We have unity in diversity. And the third exhortation, implication, uh, is this. Paul says we are eager to maintain unity in the bond of peace. You've heard the word peace several times throughout this message this morning. So let me talk about bond. This word bond, I, I looked it up, and it's really interesting in the original language, it's actually another biological term, just like soma, the body is. Bond is a ligament. It's, a, it's this tough, connective tissue, and it's flexible, and it connects bone to bone to bone. It keeps the body together. What a beautiful picture for us. Our body needs a tough and flexible connective tissue in order to keep us all together. And what does Paul call this ligament? He calls it the ligament of peace. So the implication is that we are to be eager, we are to strive to maintain peace and harmony in this community. Clearly, maintaining peace in any community is difficult. I mean, just look at the last three years. If we've been so divided, it's been polarized, maintaining peace is difficult. And you would think that in a Christian community, we ought to be able to set an example. Well, I feel like in the last three years, we really haven't. I feel like our evangelical church has been just as divided and torn apart as the rest of society, and that pains me. It really does. Living together in the Christian community isn't easy. There's this humorous little rhyme that goes, to live above with saints we love, oh, that would be glory. But to live below with saints we know, oh, that's a different story. <laughs> Right, so it's difficult. So how do we maintain peace in the community? And that is up to the individuals. That's where the individuals come in. And that's where we come to the third part of the sermon and the third part of the arrow. The fletching, what it does, it helps direct the shaft by giving it a little spin like a spin in a football. This spin gives the arrow accuracy, it gives the arrow stability in flight. We as individuals, we have that impact on the entire body. What we say and do impacts the stability and the, uh, and the accuracy of the flight. You can't say to yourself or to others, oh, I'm just one person, what I say, what I do doesn't matter. I can leave this church if I want to, it doesn't matter, I'm just, no, my friends. I've heard that during this, the last three years and it pains me. What you say, what you do, how you behave matters. So we have to be aware of the impact we have on each other and on the unity of the body. So what does Paul exhort us as individuals? So we now come and back up to verses one and two in Ephesians. And here Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner 
worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Can you back up a little bit? Yeah, thanks. He starts off, and I'm gonna break it down. He starts off with saying, um, we have to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Did you know that you are called? You all have been called. If you're a believer, you've been called out of a past life and into a newness of life. You have been selected, chosen, before the world was, was built to be part of this family. And God chose you, he called you for a reason. And that's the purpose of our calling. What is that purpose? Paul describes it right at the beginning of this, um, this letter in, in uh, chapter one. And now, here we can go. Chapter one, verse four, Paul says, and God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. You see, our calling is to be holy and blameless before him. And furthermore, the purpose of his will for us and his family is to bring praise to him and to exhibit his glory and his grace to a watching world. Wow, now that is a sobering calling. That is a sobering calling. Knowing that our, what our calling is should really motivate us to walk in that manner, which is worthy of that calling. We should be intentional as we interact with others to ask these questions of ourselves. And only you can answer these questions. Let these be a litmus test of how you interact with people. First, are my attitude and my speech holy and blameless before God? Are what I do and say going to bring him praise? Am I walking and talking in a manner worthy of being called his child? That's being intentional. The next exhortation he gives is humility, gentleness, and patience. I don't know about you, but these three really convict me. Uh, I, I hope they speak to you as well. Well, they convict me because I'm none of these. I realize that I am not humble, that I want to exalt myself above others, that I'm proud of my spirituality. In fact, I mean, the fact that I can come and preach to you, is, it further stokes that sin of pride, the sin that I've been struggling with my entire Christian walk. I know that my raised voices, my sometimes rash words, the, the sarcasm sometimes I inject into my conversations, they just betray my lack of gentleness and patience. And if I've done that for you, I, I beg for your forgiveness because I'm a work in progress. You know, I, I, I just pray that the Holy Spirit can work from within me, that he can transform my character and my conduct so that I'm more like Christ, so that Christ's humility and gentleness and patience can overcome my own sinful fleshly self. And that's my prayer. That's what I prayed for this morning before coming here. 
Maybe that's a prayer I can offer for you. Perhaps it's a prayer I can offer for us as a body, that we put aside differences and divisions, but that we walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling and we, we intentionally let humility and, and, and gentleness and patience guide what we do and say here. And my fi the final exhortation is to bear one with one another in love. This means we are to cover everything we do in agape. Agape love, this is the love that Christ showed us. Selfless, sacrificial love. Ultimately, it is agape, which is that tough, flexible, connective tissue that binds us to each other, isn't it? That's what binds us in spiritual unity. It's love from the Father, love that was exhibited by the Son, love that was poured into us and flows out of us by the Holy Spirit. Love for one another. Oh, amen. Well, let me summarize now. Um, this is the points that I hope that we can take from, uh, from Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Firstly, the arrowhead. There is a sevenfold unity that we can hold on to. We are one body under the headship of the triune God, and we have one saving faith, one hope of glory, one baptism of the Holy Spirit that ties us together. This is the arrowhead. We, as the body, we're the shaft of the arrow. We want to fly true. We want to fly straight behind the arrowhead that God has placed in front of us. And to do that, we have to strive to maintain unity and peace. And finally, as individual, we are the fletching of the arrow. We realize that our actions and our speech influence where our church goes. So for that, we have to intentionally, we have to intentionally ask ourselves, are we being humble? Are we striving to be gentle? And are we striving to be patient with one another? And do we cover one another with agape love, which binds us together in unity? Amen? So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And now, these three remain, one faith, one hope, one love, but the greatest of these is love. And I'm gonna close us with a benediction that's adapted from Romans chapter 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony and in a bond of peace with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together and in unity you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our God who is over all and through all and in all, now and forevermore. Have a blessed Sunday. Hope to see you next week.